they're very different products. And so we just want all the listeners out there to know that, that, you know, these are products that, that are different and consumers who purchase those products should expect something different. It's not as simple as purchasing one of these ground beef alternatives, throwing it on the grill, throwing it on a hamburger and expecting the same exact eating experience that you would with a ground beef burger. That's not what you're going to get. So if that's your expectation, then that's not going to happen. If you understand it's going to be different, then that is, uh, that's where these products are going to fit in. Welcome to Meats Pad, a platform dedicated to sharing breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the meats industry. On each episode, we will hear from meat specialists and professionals to talk about numerous topics in meat science. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the National Provisioner, Ultrasource, the new standard for innovation, Dry Age Pro, makes dry aging in-house flexible, safe, and affordable. Carrie's food protection and preservative business keeps food safe and extends shelf life through clean label and conventional preservative solutions. FiscoFan is a global leader and innovative partner in the food industry who provides solutions for the casing market. Hello, me folks. Welcome back to the Meets My Podcast. So happy and really excited to, to have this two guests with us this afternoon. Dr. Bass, how are you? Oh man, I'm I'm excited as well. Not maybe maybe not as excited as you are because I don't have K State roots, but we do have some Kansas Staters here. Um, Dr. Travis O'Quinn and Sam Sam. What was your last name? Davis. Sam Davis is with us as well, and so yeah, this is pretty cool. And honestly, um, uh, uh, Dr. O'Quinn and I do have some connection through Colorado State University. That was that was where I did my PhD work as well as 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 you and and uh, and and some of the stuff that really stood out um, from op. Uh, opportunities where I've had a chance to listen to Travis talk is the research you've done in the past on overall palatability, beef especially, but overall palatability and some of the stuff that we need to consider when looking at palatability, especially with with whole muscle items, steak items is what I would I would really describe. And something you talked about, um, a three-legged stool. Can you can you tell the the audience about this three-legged stool concept? Yeah, no problem. I, I think uh, first off, I, I'm excited to be here. I know Francisco's been asking me about being on the podcast for a while now, and schedules just uh, have not really matched up. So I'm excited here at RMC to be able to to be able to jump on and do this. But no, uh, Dr. Bash, you're right. Most of the research that I've done is really focused on on beef palatability from different aspects. I think that when we look at kind of the history of beef palatability and how it's been approached. There for a long time, we focused on on some major traits and specifically beef tenderness. I mean, the beef industry, we've known since the first quality audit in the first part of the 90s that, hey, beef tenderness was a challenge. And so the industry invested lots of money in research. And, and we have people, my predecessor, Dr. Michael Dykeman, R.C. Pollock Award winner this year here, um, and v- devoted a good chunk of his career to really evaluating beef tenderness. And so the industry responded really great. I mean, and so we have wonderful data that's shown that, hey, we've made great strides when it comes to tenderness. Um, people of my generation, as we go forward and look at beef palatability, I, I think that we're kind of in a space to where it's, it's a different dynamic now than, than maybe it was. And so I've tried to take all of our research and look at palatability as a, as a really holistic trait. Um, and so you mentioned a three-legged stool. That's, that's not a novel concept that I had came up with, but I have kind of kind of tinkered with it and kind of some of these ideas. And so the idea being that overall palatability or overall eating quality is kind of the top of that stool. And if you think of like an old three-legged milk stool with tenderness, juiciness, and flavor being the legs of, of that stool. So meaning that overall eating quality kind of rests on those three traits. 
Um, there's some really good data that's been that's been done, especially out of Australia, that looked at a lot of traits and was able to narrow it down to kind of those three and kind of anecdotal data through time. We we know that. Um, I think that that that's kind of the traditional model, but I don't feel like that's really tells the whole story. Um, within that, uh, the, when I present that slide, it, it, I always show that there's a a line on each of those legs, so where each of those becomes unacceptable. We've all had the steak that's too tough, and we've had uh, a steak that's too dry. Flavor, I, I think I always describe that you've had a steak that could be just completely bland. If we're eating beef steaks, we expect a good, rich, beefy flavor. You can you can get a beef steak that's too bland, and that, and that's a problem. Or probably more commonly, we encountered steaks that have some kind of non-characteristic flavor with, with each of those. And so once we go past that unacceptable level in each of those different traits, um, we can overall palatability can fail no matter how good the other traits are. Now with that said, if we go to the other end of the, the stool, you can actually have a, a, a level of eating quality for each of those traits that makes up for deficiencies in the other traits. We all, uh, a beef tenderloin's a great example of this. It's the most expensive of all our subprimal cuts. It's the far and away the most tender cut in the carcass. But when you actually try to do sensory panels on those, it doesn't have the best flavor, and it is very hard to keep juicy Usually sometimes. Usually pretty lean. Yeah, really lean muscle. So, but the tenderness of that cut excels so much, it makes up for those deficiencies and those others. So that compensatory level in there uh, really makes up for a lot of that. And then I uh, think that the really key thing to understand is that there's an interaction between those three traits. So tenderness, juiciness, and flavor don't exist in a vacuum unto themselves. Um, they, they work together. And so if you have a juicy or a tender steak, you're going to trigger your mouth to dump out some more saliva to kind of give you the, a juiciness response as well. So that interaction makes it a little, bit, a little bit more complicated. And then some work I was able to do for you guys when I first got, this, when I first got to Kansas State with Certified Angus Beef, uh, we really looked at the something, a circle on the outside of that stool, if you will, about consumer perceptions. And so I think that that's really something that we have a tendency to forget about is that a consumer's perception on a given day has a big impact on eating quality. Um, you, I mean, uh, all kinds of things. If I go down to a really nice five-star restaurant and I pay over $100 for a really nice high steak, my that's going to impact my perception of eating quality. If I go down to a uh, discounted steakhouse, local in town, get something that's a, 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 a uh, item on their menu, I don't have the same level of eating quality. And, uh, and I believe if we give consumers the same steak, those really drive that. And so we know that there's things that in consumers encounter, branding terms, all kinds of different inputs that really do overall kind of shift how they view that eating quality on that day. So um, what I wish was a little bit more straightforward of a model sometimes is much more complicated. Mm -hmm. And so I really enjoy working in that space and really trying to evaluate how all those traits actually interact to work together to create this overall eating quality that we care most about. Well, and and, and meat palatability. I mean, it, it is a really fun topic to um, to investigate and to better understand. And, and for those out there listening to, I mean, we, we do spend a lot of time talking about beef on this podcast, and beef is a great model for some of the research that needs to be done, tenderness and, and palatability and, and, and things like that. But would, would you say that that three-legged stool concept can be translated through the other species as well, pork, chicken, et cetera? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that the general premise of, of that is, is stays the same. I think when we look at those other commodities, you know, some of the – there's some big differences when we compare beef to pork and chicken. I, I would – 
probably be interested to see. But I think that when we talk about consumers that are, let's use chicken as an example, there's a marked transition in flavor difference between chicken products and beef products. And so, so perhaps in a chicken model, that flavor part of that stool may not be as big of a driver to the overall eating quality for that consumer as we see in beef, which is a, a meat product that consumers expect a lot of flavor from. Yeah, and especially, I mean, I, I had the, the privilege to to work with you and Sam with uh, some of the research that uh, we'll be talking uh, later today. For those folks that are listening, small meat-sized meat processors, what are some of the misconceptions, especially that we see this race of, of small meat plants that you can maybe help them out to effectively communicate those pillars of meat palatability that they can benefit from? Yeah, I, I think when we start talking about uh, how that can be done from a small uh, meat packer standpoint, I think a lot of the same things that I would teach in my ASI 350 class about ways that you can uh, control chilling to be able to prevent as much cold shortening as possible. And we talk about aging of products and we talk about um, thaw rigor with freezing. If I'm a small processor to understand how those factors and what I do from a anamortal standpoint all the way through this conversion of meat process all the way and how that impacts the final product probably is the biggest impact on what's actually going on in my final product. And so being able to, to do good practices uh, throughout the, the slaughter process to be able to, to make sure we're not creating artificial tenderness challenges with that uh, would be something that was important. Well, and we have to remind all our, our, our small um, and, and regional processors out there, um, as, as great as a story that we may have with the small local um, uh, environment, you can't taste the local in the meat. Um, you can't taste the small in the meat, but you can taste, have good palatability. And using basic concepts like you're describing right now, there are ways of, of making sure that that final product still has the great story, but then also has the good eating experience. Yeah, and I, and I think that really, once a, if when someone purchases a product from a small processor, the, the processor, for the most part, has won the biggest battle. They got them to walk into the store. They got them to make a purchase at their at this local establishment. Now, the key, obviously, as most of us know, and people in this conference that really deal from an industry side know well more than I do, the key is getting them to come back. And, and the biggest way to get that person to come back into your store to purchase another side of beef or to purchase another package of steaks is to deliver on the eating quality that the, that those consumers want. Um, and so I think that's critical is that your end product is the gateway to being able to get consumers to come back and, and purchase more product from you. And I think that's the goal of most small processors is to, to get this repeat business day over day. Obviously, once you get that customer, then they're also word of mouth being able to spread that. And I, and I think that's a good a way to be able to grow businesses and everything. But I, for me, a lot of that does go back to how good of an eating quality that product actually delivers. Absolutely. And I think, uh, Sam, I think the this is uh, one of your projects, most like master's project that uh, that you conducted. And I had the, uh, the privilege to to work with you on that sensory panel standpoint. So we're going to talk about plant-based products and how they compare with ground beef, commodity ground beef. Can you tell us the importance of your research? I think I'm very, very excited uh, with this data that, uh, that you guys came up with. Tell us about a little bit of the introduction of this. Why why did you guys conduct this research? Yeah, definitely. To start off with, there's just not a lot of research out there. Um, as far as I know, there's no research out there that is comparing um, directly some of those plant-based ground beef alternatives to traditional ground beef. 
Um, so it was really cool to kind of be on the forefront of that and to hopefully provide a really good base for future research and and some future studies on these products um, because you know they they aren't going away. Um, they're they're increasing in market share and and you know we need we need to learn as much as we can about them. Um, so my project um, it was funded by um, the Kansas Beef Council. So it was checkoff dollars that. Um, funded this research. Uh, my specific portion uh, was one of three different parts. So the other two parts, um, they went to the, the vet school and did um, toxicology um, and then looked at the hormone contents of those alternatives um, versus ground beef. And then um, the other part um, went to the dietetics department at K-State to look at nutrition and that sort of thing. So so, so this is really interesting then, because I beyond just the palatability, which we'll get to, let's talk about some of the differences in in say the the hormone content between the plant based versus versus meat. So I believe they actually um, there was several uh, different um, types of estrogen that they evaluated, um, and I don't think they found a whole lot of differences. Um, amongst those products in comparison to ground beef. I think there was one specific estrogen that, that they saw that was different. Um, otherwise, they did not find any differences there. But our, our, and our colleagues are still finishing up a lot of that data analysis and collection. So that's data that will be forthcoming from, from that part of our study. Um, but, yeah, with that, none of that's really kind of in a finalized form yet to answer those questions really well. Since 1883, Ultrasource has been a trusted supplier to the food industry. Ultrasource provides superior kill floor, processing, packaging, and labeling equipment and operational supplies. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's that's something that that we we in the beef community, especially, have have really um, emphasized that if if there if there is a dis- difference at all, um, that 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 beef is likely to have a lower content of any type of circulating hormone. Um, Plants especially have a very high level of estrogens. And so if that is even part of the discussion when it comes to sales and consumer acceptance and things like that, I have a feeling that beef is probably going to still be superior in that discussion. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So I think we can you know, tell us a little bit about the study design, uh, very general, like how many products did you compare to ground beef and how is how's that uh, decision-making as, as to which products, or maybe... We cannot maybe mention the brands, but we can kind of tell. Yeah, uh, most definitely. Yeah. So basically, Dr. Thompson was the one that was, it was kind of his brainchild. He was the one that picked the products out. Um, so uh, they did a really good job of procuring those different products. Um, we procured all, all of the ground beef, um, but they went to several different places around the state um, to get the that quantity of alternative protein that we needed for this study. Um, so our objective was to just simply compare the, the two um, groups of products, the three different fat levels of ground beef versus three different alternative proteins, um, and just see if there was differences, um, see if they were in any way comparable to ground beef, um, like the claims that a lot of these companies are making. So we had uh, three different types of alternative proteins. One is one that's primarily found at the retail level. Um, a second one found primarily in the food service channels. And then the third one being a, a traditional, um, what you would think of as traditional soy-based um, alternative vegetable patty. And, and, and so, and what did you find? Tell, tell us more about your results. 
we found uh, really big differences in uh, most of the um, assays that, that we performed. So um, specifically with our consumer panel analysis, um, it was very clear that those products were not the same as ground beef and offered very, very different palatability characteristics than ground beef. Um, we found very similar results in our trained panel data as well. And our objective data did a really good job of backing up a lot of what we saw um, from those from those panelists. Well, and I'm going to pressure you a little bit. Um, you're being very scientific right now, but what were the results? How did the how did the traditional ground beef perform to the plant-based items? Uh, it wasn't even close. As far as um, juiciness, um, the ground beef was juicier. Um, there was no beef flavor associated with those alternative proteins. As far as a texture and a tenderness standpoint, very, very different as well. Um, those products were a lot softer. Um, they you know, didn't offer the same mouthfeel at all to ground beef. So yeah, vast, vast differences. And in the study, I think it is good to point out, uh, Sam's talking about all the characteristics we measured. You know, we actually had what we call a, a trained sensory panel, an expert panel, in which we did everything as close to a machine as possible to be able to evaluate traits and say, hey, on our, this scale, this is what X is for juiciness, and this is what this is for the other traits that we evaluated. But a big component of this, and probably the most important component, is we actually brought in consumers off the streets. Uh, we do a lot of consumer-based research at Kansas State within our group, and, and when we do these, we just bring consumers in. We didn't tell them any information other than, hey, we're feeding you hamburger patties. And then we asked them a whole host of questions, many of the questions that Sam has already mentioned. But the advantage is when we bring in the consumers, we can get some opinions that we can ask them. And so many of the scales, as opposed to how juicy is the product, it turns into how much did you like the product? And so it does kind of change some of the interpretational things. And so as Sam said, when we look at the consumer data in here on our scales of how much did you like it, um, there was pretty sizable differences. Our three ground beefs actually were rated a lot higher for overall liking than the three ground beef alternatives. We do something on all of our sensory work, anyone that's ever looked at any of our work, we ask yes, no questions. We're big believers in the power of an acceptability question. Was this product acceptable? Essentially, are you going to purchase this product? Um, would you eat this product if it was available kind of things? And, and on our acceptability questions, um, we had huge differences in the percentage of, those, of the consumers that actually told us, yes, the product was acceptable um, for the ground beef, which was much higher than the percentage of the consumers that told us any of the ground beef alternatives were acceptable. Huge differences on the magnitude of greater than 30 to 40 percent differences on the acceptabilities. And that's probably on the low end. I'm curious as to um, if you guys ask or I'm just I'm just uh, curious or, you know, anything about demographics or. On top of that, what is the market for those type of products? Well, I, I'll jump in here, Francisco. I'm glad you asked a question about demographics. Every time we publish papers and, and all the time we get asked about demographics on this, I, I we have done consumer work since I was a master student all the way through, and this question about demographics always has a tendency to to bubble in there. And and quite frankly, the, the truth is when we look at data that's been done, our own data at Kansas State, data that I was involved with in Texas Tech, it really, for the most part, shows the same thing, that demographics is not the biggest separator when you just give someone a, a piece of meat and say, ask these questions about what do you think about the juiciness or the tenderness. Demographics really does get washed out to a large extent. And I know that's sometimes hard for people to always understand, but 
the truth of the matter is we can look at demographics multiple ways and we have we've been asked by groups that have funded projects can we split this up by demographics and every time we do that there's next to no differences in the demographic groups so I'll let Sam answer the questions about this, but I'm glad you asked that question because I do think we start talking about consumer data and interpreting consumer data. I'm not discounting that demographics don't uh, are not important. I'm just saying that I think that sometimes we have a tendency to think that different demographic populations, and we're talking in a in a very broad sense. I'm making a statement about the United States demographic population. Obviously, if we go to different parts of the world with different uh, cultures and different beef and other meat products that those consumers are used to, it's different. But within the U.S., we see very little variation in terms of what we get for sensory responses. But I'm glad you asked that question because it gives us an opportunity to discuss something that I think sometimes we have a tendency to maybe get a little lost on. But I'll, I'll let Sam answer the question about our, our study. Yeah, specifically looking at the demographics of our consumer panelists, um, the biggest thing is we wanted to avoid um, using college students. Um, we wanted to have a, a decent, you know, cross-section of consumers. Specifically looking at our demographics, um, about 50-50 male and female. A majority of the household incomes were uh, between 75000 and 150000 um, So I yeah, pre pretty general. Yeah, age groups of mainly most of our consumers in the 30s to 40s. 30 to 40, yeah. Uh, obviously, we wanted to target consumers that would actually be purchasing these. Right. Yeah, the family purchasing. Yes. Exactly. That's, that's always our that's goal. That's really good. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's going to substantiate the data that much more. Um, and, and, you know, we continue to hear how how the the sales continue to increase of plant-based alternative protein items. I, I won't even I won't even use the term fake meat because I don't even, even want to allow the word meat to get in involved in that. Um, um, and, I'm, and I'm grateful to hear that even though, um, you know, the, there, there still was a benefit um, palatability wise towards the ground beef. Um, and, and I like to always say, you know, beef nailed it the first time. Um, the, the, no added ingredients. Um, it, it's what it is, right? What were the fat percentages? I'm just curious as to... Uh, For the ground beef, we used 70-30, 80-20, and 90-10. So very, very commonly accessible yes. fat um, levels. And, and really cool distribution, in fact, because you're starting with the really high fat 70-30, super juicy, super flavorful, um, one that you want to have a fire extinguisher handy if you're putting it on the grill. Um, the uh, the 80, that was a joke, by the way, guys. You don't have to laugh, but it's encouraged. Um, and then you have the 80-20, uh, um, very general purpose, great burger, but great for everything else. And then the 90-10, awesome for taco meat and and spaghetti sauce and things like that. Um, uh, and, a, and a wide range uh, of, of, of juiciness and flavor. And what I'm getting to is if we can kind of almost make it full circle back to what contributes to that overall palatability. And I know, Travis, you've done a lot of research as to the fat incorporation. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, uh, Phil, you bring up a great point on our fat. And that was fully intentional for this study. I mean, we, we went into this. Those, as you pointed out, are the main three fat or close to the main three fats that we could find at retail. When we talk about these ground beef alternatives and, and we talk about marketing for many of them as, hey, this is the same or very similar to ground beef, which is ultimately the overall objective when we want to just, uh, test, you know, we, we do know that there should be differences in those ground beef products. And so... Uh, we didn't have any idea. No one ever says this is the same as an 80-20 fat. And so so we were trying to kind of cover all bases with that to see 
you know, hey, maybe it's more similar to a 90-10 than an 80-20. And, and one of the things that we're doing work with ground beef, you asked about ground beef palatability. Um, I would give the same answer to anyone that you just did about the, the fat differences. Although I would probably say not just this study, but we've done a lot of ground beef studies. We, in our studies, find it very difficult to separate out those fat percentages when we, when we, after we cook those mm-hmm. and then we feed those to consumers. Um, we don't, and, and at least in a, in a ground burger form, we lose a lot of those differences that I think we an, an anticipate. And that's been repeatable on, on multiple studies we've done. So the 70-30 has a tendency to get up on juiciness. But when we start talking about comparing pretty much any other of the, the traits that we were thinking about here, or even when we analyze these through all these objective measures and we take them in the lab and measure them for springiness and cohesiveness and all these things, techniques we have to be able to do shear them and measure some tenderness we we do lose maybe a little bit of that variation in, in eating quality or on uh on the differences in those products I'm, I'm every time we do ground beef work i'm, I'm amazed on that we could look at the results and how similar 70 30 90 10 and 80 20 have a tendency to be on the back side but i think that the functionality is a is a huge point as you pointed out in terms of consumers matching ground beef blends uh to what their intended use is I really like that the, the, you guys conducted your research because we see this constant more and more, these type of products uh, on the retail level. So um, speaking of which, I would like to just know what do you think the next 5, 10 years, do you, do you envision see more products like this? Maybe in a different forms, more plant-based products? Or Yeah, I'll answer that question for you there, Francisco. I think that... Uh, we had a great speaker this morning, Jack Bobo, discussing, um, you know, who I know you all have done a podcast with. One of the things I did like his presentation, he brought up a little bit about the alternative protein um, side. And his point was that these products are going to probably continue to grow. Um, lots of projections out there. Pick your favorite one in terms of how big this is going to grow. And he talked about market share and everything. Um, he pointed out a very good thing that I really enjoyed, which he said, well, so is the beef side of that. The, the, these products are going to grow to, you know, 10% of overall protein, but the beef side's still going to grow as well. So this is not necessarily going to be replacement food items. Like many times this gets phrased as a, we think that as these products grow in their market share, that they're always taking away beef consumers out of that same piece of the pie. We're also growing the beef side of the pie too. Uh, and so these these products probably do have a place in the market. There's going to be consumers that these are appealing to for a variety of reasons. So I anticipate that these can continue to grow. Um, and maybe this is a question to come, but I'll jump ahead. One of the things that when we got done with, with Sam's study and we looked ahead towards the future and said, all right, what can we do? One of the limitations of our study um, that I'll be the first to admit to, and, and Sam would as well, is that just like all the other meat palatability research we do, these were unseasoned patties. So mm-hmm. this was just yeah. ground beef on its own or just the ground beef alternatives on their own with no seasoning added to them um, compared apples to apples that way without salt, pepper, anything. Um, now, the reality of the situation is is that when we talk about these products in the market, they're never you're never just eating a, a patty for that product. Most of the time, it's an ingredient. It is a patty on a on a hamburger it is the the meat in a taco mm-hmm. it is perhaps in, in a meatball or something like that so more if you think about these as an ingredient as opposed to stand alone on their own and so right now we don't have a good understanding and, and we actually have a, a funded project to do a follow-up study on this to where we are going to treat these products more as 
ingredients and put them in that kind of comparison to ground beef as opposed to standing alone on their own. So to your point, Francisco, I think that we're going to continue to see these products. Perhaps we might see less of, hey, this is just a straight ground beef replacement. This is not a product that's meaning to go head to head with ground beef. But when we talk about seasoning and other ingredients to those meatballs or sausages or things that one of the things that Sam didn't mention in his results, the biggest difference that we had between these, he mentioned the juiciness differences where someone that's done a lot of juiciness research. I appreciated him mentioning, <laughs> but the biggest differences was the flavor differences. The, um, our consumers did not classify these as, as beef. They did not have, when you say how much you like the flavor, those liking scores were incredibly low. Um, and then on our train sensory panel, they they didn't, Francisco, as you well know, you're nodding your head. They, they didn't taste much like beef uh, whatsoever. So the flavor difference was the biggest challenge. Um, and if you're a consumer and you're eating this and expecting a flavor that's going to be similar to, to what you would get with a normal uh, beef hamburger, then you would be disappointed. And so I think that to combat that, being able to add seasonings, to be able to, to keep these as an ingredient as some of these other more processed, traditional processed meats, I think that the, the we'll get different answers in that in that world and and we'll see, and be interesting to see how anecdotally as time goes on these products morph into our our protein mix at, at retail and how they're actually utilized but i would my hypothesis and guess is we see more of these products going that direction towards being in a sausage or a meatball or something like that and maybe less of them pushed directly as straight ground beef substitutes and I forgot to to bring out the fact that we haven't talked about the non-meat ingredients in those products. Uh, on your presentation, how many ingredients did uh, those plant-based have? Anywhere from 17 to 20. And how many on the ground beef? One. Do you have any thoughts on those um, products and how, I mean, the cl all the clean label, like going away from those? and Right. So I guess the first thing that I would address, um, I've had, you know, at different presentations, people have asked me a very similar question about that. Like, wait, how do we know what's in them or anything? The first thing I will tell them, there is nothing in those products that you wouldn't find in any other processed food item. All of those ingredients, for the most part, are found elsewhere in the grocery store. That, again, you bring up, you know, clean label. By no means are they clean label. Um, they they do not fit into that category whatsoever. Yeah. So so from yeah from a, an amazing sales perspective for those um, still endorsing meat these days, which I do. It is it's a it's a whole food. It is it is a beef. It, it's it's what it is. You know. I mean it, that there's nothing added. And in fact, there are legal definitions for even using the term ground beef. Um, you cannot have those additional ingredients and and for those processors out there just know that um, as a as a fact um, no binders extenders uh, seasonings etc for it to be labeled ground beef it must be skeletal muscle tissue done that's it so it, it still has a great selling point especially for those looking for the more clean label um, looking for the more whole foods more connection back to agriculture and the animal beef yeah, it's what's for dinner. I have to. I had to say it. I had to say it. So, so. I think one of the things that for us is our overall conclusion on, on this research. For us, it, it was pretty clear that we went into the, the study with the objective of, hey, these products get marketed many times as, hey, this is a replacement to ground beef. You should expect the same. Many times, some of the marketing campaigns directly go to, this is the same or equal to, to ground beef. And 
And we just wanted to evaluate that. And I think our overall conclusion, if we put a bow on the whole study, both Sam and I and everyone in our research group that was involved with it, our, our message is pretty clear is that these products are, are very different than ground beef. They should not, they should be considered different food products. And so I do think there's a space uh, for them in, in today's meat case or in today's retail uh, segment. And I, and I do think that these are products that are going to be around for a very long time. And I think the consumers that will purchase those are going to uh, maybe be different than the consumers that would get targeted by the traditional meat case. I think these are just different products. And so uh, our, whole, on, our whole takeaway message on, the, on this study is that these, these are different products. They need to be treated different. They need to be viewed different. They should, quite honestly, be marketed different. And that was all of our goals, just to say, hey, if these are really similar to ground beef then that's something to know. Or if they're very dissimilar to ground beef, that's something to know. And we ended up in the latter end of that. And what the data showed was that they're very different products. And so we just want all the listeners out there to know that, that, you know, these are products that, that are different and consumers who purchase those products should expect something different. It's not as simple as purchasing one of these ground beef alternatives, throwing it on the grill, throwing it on a hamburger and expecting the same exact eating experience that you would with a ground beef burger. That's not what you're going to get. So if that's your expectation, then that's not going to happen. If you understand it's going to be different, then that is, uh, that's where these products are going to fit in. Well, I, I really appreciate that perspective, and and even with all my tongue tonguing attacks, almost, um, I you know you're right. This is a different product, and there's there's going to be consumers out there that are looking for just something different. We all want something different every once in a while, and 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 that's okay. Um, and so if if it's something that you would like to try, please do make your own decisions. But science has demonstrated that. When on a head-to-head comparison at this time, ground beef has a tendency to be a bit more superior. Before we do wrap it up, we do like to ask our guests, what's your background? How did you get into meat science? And maybe, maybe Sam, you can start us off. So um, both of my parents were very heavily involved um, in the meat science world. They both did meat judging um, at Tarleton State um, and then went on to, to work for IVP and Tyson. Um, and, and so I kind of, I'm kind of one of the few that had a lot of exposure from a really young age, um, grew up primarily uh, in the Flint Hills of Kansas. Um, so really strong agriculture background, uh, made a great decision on going to K-State, got two degrees from there. Um, you know, was on several really competitive judging teams. Um, so that kind of brought me to where I am now. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I love talking about my background. So I, I have a different path than a lot of, of people, and I think sometimes in our field we have a tendency, in a, and, and certainly in an animal science uh, department that I work at Kansas State, one of the best animal science department in the country, shameless plug for Kansas State there. <laughs> um, you know, I think we have students that sometimes come in and see faculty that are all come from production backgrounds, and, uh, and then that's not me. And so I, I teach the meat science class there, so it's the we have 70 kids that take that every semester, and so... Most of many of those students come from very urban backgrounds or suburban backgrounds. And sometimes I think that in our field in, in animal science or meat science, sometimes those students feel like they don't have anyone that they can identify with. Well, that is my background. So I'm from um, League City, Texas, which is halfway between Houston and Galveston. It's about 250,000 people, but that's kind of unfair because where I'm from, one city ends and the next one begins and you don't know where those lines actually are. And so I have a very urban, suburban background. And so my involvement in agriculture 
uh, was through FFA and 4-H. I fell in love with uh, meat science through meat judging through FFA in high school. Uh, had a, a very good time uh, judging. I decided to continue my education at Texas Tech University where I was on the meat judging team, got involved with meat animal evaluation, worked with some great folks there uh, for both my uh, bachelor's and master's degrees, went to Colorado State um, for, a, for a PhD, uh, worked with some wonderful, wonderful scientists at that university. Um, and then I was able to go back to Texas Tech for a bit of time, uh, kind of work on a postdoctoral degree a little bit and before I got the opportunity to come to Kansas State. And then once at K-State, my my roles have shifted numerous times. Uh, while I've been there, I was hired in originally doing extension work, much like you do at the uh, University of Idaho, Phil. And then uh, through faculty departures and, and, and needs, I was able to transition into a teaching and research role. And so at uh, Kansas State, I, I, I teach multiple classes and, and do research just like this. And then favorite part of my job is coaching the, the Kansas State meat judging team. And so um, that's been a, a true blessing to get to work with great students, both at the undergraduate level as well as great graduate students like Sam and many of his colleagues and contemporaries. And and while I have the microphone here and we're talking about this, I'll, I'll look at Francisco and Sam, and, and Phil knows this is true too, but I think that when you have these good podcasts and, and going through the list of, of everyone you've had, uh, you have some great scientists that you guys have, have interviewed but I do want to make it known to all the listeners that I think this is what sometimes is forgotten and not understood for people outside of academics. Nothing that we get done in academics is possible without the work of great graduate students. And so every time you see uh, someone's face and they're presenting and talking about data, there's someone just like Sam that's actually the person that did all the hard work, put in all the hours, stayed up late with the consumers, uh, and did everything to make all that possible. And so I, uh, I've i personally been blessed with working with uh, the absolute best graduate students that I could ever ask for. Uh, they do all the work, make me look really good. Um, and so I, I have a big thank you and a debt of gratitude to all my current, former, and future graduate students uh, to be able to, to make this kind of research happen. Well, and hopefully there are many, many more future uh, graduate students that are able to join your team. And um, for anybody out there that really um, appreciates um, applied, real-world, um, boots-on-the-ground kind of research, um, I'm always excited to see the kind of stuff that, that you guys and your team are working on, and that's and that's exactly what we need in the industry, um, as well as the more basic um, uh, science. But uh, uh, really, you know, this kind of research is, is super helpful for the meat industry as a whole um, and can be applied quite readily. Absolutely. That's our goal. We want to do meaningful research that when I go home and I tell my grandmother about the kind of research my students are working on, she can understand what it means. And so uh, that's I keep that in the forefront of my mind every time we do a project. Well, thank you a lot for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. I think this thank is, is going to be a very good avenue for those folks that want to understand more about that competition. I mean, I feel like this is a competition trying to be a, co a competitor to, to those animal products. So Thank you a lot. Thank you a lot. Thank you very much.